Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the Old Testament prophet Zephaniah. Right after Habakkuk and just before Haggai, you find Zephaniah. We're moving through the prophets, giving a summary of the books, book by book. Zephaniah today, and here's the key concept. Those you love, you warn. Isn't that true? Didn't you grow up hearing, don't touch that hot stove? Don't play in traffic? Beware of stranger danger, right? I mean, did anybody you, who ever loved you say, go ahead, play in traffic, see what happens? No. Those you love, you warn. Zephaniah is warning his people, specifically against complacency about spiritual things. It reminds me of a story I, I heard. It's a, obviously a fictional story, but it's a story about how Satan was growing concerned about a particular body of believers, and he called his demons together and wanted to get a battle plan against this particular dedicated body of believers. And you know what? I hope that's Quail Lakes Baptist Church. And he grew, brought his demons together, and he said, what can we do about this group? And so they put their heads together, and they said, well, let's, let's tell them there's no God. He said, well, that'll never work. They already know that there's a God. Someone else suggested, let's tell them there's no such thing as sin. They already feel a sense of great conviction about their sin. That'll never work. Well, let's tell them there's no judgment. Well, they know that God is the judge, and one day they'll stand before him. Finally, the fourth suggestion, stuck. Let's tell them there's no hurry. And the weapon of complacency was born. No hurry about the things of the Spirit. Here in the book of Zephaniah, he is pushing back against the complacency of God's people. We don't know a lot about the man Zephaniah, but we learn something about him in the very first verse of the first chapter. It says this, The word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. In case you're wondering what we find out there, actually there is something significant. Usually when the prophets identify themselves in their ancestry, they go three steps back. Zechariah goes four. I mean, Zephaniah goes four. He goes four because he wants you to see that he is related to Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah is the king, was the king, King Hezekiah. He is part of Hezekiah's family, which means in, as he is exercising his prophetic ministry during the reign of Josiah, it means that he is also in Josiah's family. He's related to the king. What's significant about that is that Josiah took the throne at age 8 in 639 B.C. And for many years, many of those formative years, there were advisors and people around him helping him, of course, run the kingdom. And Zephaniah was a prophet during those years. And at age 18, Josiah sought to enact a great reform in the nation to bring them back to the true worship of Jehovah. And so it's significant to see that probably it is his family member, his prophetic family member, who over the years of his formative youth was coaching him and guiding him and mentoring him in the things of the faith. So that by 18, Josiah was ready to do something about it and bring his nation back to God. However, that repentance and that revival that Josiah so sought after never really happened. Because it was kind of a top-down decision, forcing it on people. 
But Zephaniah is a bottom-up preacher. He's trying from the bottom up to bring people out of their spiritual complacency. And he warns them that there's consequences if they don't shake it, up, shake it off. Zephaniah, the book can be divided into two sections. Chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 8, will title The Grievous Day of the Lord's Judgment. And then chapter 3, verse 9 to the end of the book, The Glorious Day of the Lord's Salvation. Zephaniah warns them. Let's keep on the reading in chapter 1, verse 2. Continue with me. It says, I will this is God speaking through the prophet. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both men and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. The wicked will have only heaps of rubble when I cut man off from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Now, the Lord, through Zephaniah, is using exaggerated language to show them the disaster that's coming. In reality, when Babylon invades Jerusalem, the fish will be fine and the birds will be fine. But he wants the people to be worried and to be afraid. And so he exaggerates this language that's coming and notice how God is directly involved in the, in the uh, movement of his judgment. He says, I will consume, I will cut off, I will overthrow, I will sweep away. God is personally going to be involved in the judgment that's coming. One man has said, the hand of God is always hidden in the glove of history. And that's exactly right. It's always been that way, but always with merciful intent. Because throughout the prophets we see that the reason that this punishment is coming upon God's people is because God knows that the best place for them and for you to live is in the center of His will. God knows that that is the place where you're safe and secure and will find blessing and hope. That's what He wants for His people. But He's got to push them a little bit to get them there. You see, left to ourselves, we believe a lie. And the lie is a caricature of God. The lie says that God is somehow some cosmic party pooper. Everything that's fun, He calls sin. And everything that's boring, He calls righteousness. And we believe that lie when the truth is that there is joyful pleasure in living in the will of God. There is joyful pleasure in following hard after His standards for your life. Our human tendency, though, is to accept that lie. And Zephaniah, in his book, is writing against the lies that his people have come to believe. And there are six of them. I want to show you the lies. The first lie has to do with religion. And the lie is that we can create our own religion according to our own preferences. Continue reading with me, starting in verse 4. God says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah, against all who live in Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place every remnant of Baal and the names of the pagan idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and also swear by Molech, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of Him. Verse 9, On that day I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold to who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. I want you to see how many idolatrous uh, gods are mentioned in just that small passage of Scripture. 
See, what the people are doing, I'll call, the, it's the sin of syncretism. They are pulling a little bit of Baal worship and a little bit of Molech worship, a little bit of the worship of Jehovah, a little bit of astrology, a little bit of the god Dagon of the Philistines. They're putting all that together, wrapping it all up in some philosophical soup and calling that their religion. It's the sin of syncretism. And it's a sin because it's a hollowing out and the pollution of the truth of the worship of the one true God. Baal and Molech and Dagon, all these gods kind of mixed in. Verse 9 is interesting because if you'll remember, uh, verse 9 is where I get the Dagon reference because you remember back in 1 Samuel, at, at one point in history, the Ark of the Covenant was stolen by the Philistines. And you remember they brought it down to the temple of their god, Dagon, which is completely consistent with the cultural practice of the day. What you did was when you conquered somebody or you had an enemy, if you brought an artifact of their God into temp the temple of your God, it was a statement that our God is, strength, uh, is more mighty than your God, okay? So they bring in the Ark of the Covenant into the temple of Dagon, but you remember what happened. Day after day when they woke up and the priests went into the temple, it, the, the statue of Dagon was face down on the floor as if worshiping the God of the Ark of the Covenant the God Jehovah. Day after day, every day they came in and they had to prop Dagon back up again. I'm telling you what, that's bad for business if you're in the Dagon business, right? And so now, now what happens in, in chapter uh, 1 Samuel 5 verse 4, this is, this is what happens the next day. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. You see, they had this practice of stepping over that threshold. Somehow, over the years, that practice filtered into the people of Judah. In their mishmash of their religion that they're inventing with just a little bit here, there, and everywhere, they, they brought in this ritual of stepping over the threshold. They don't even understand that the reason that that was formed, it was a demonstration of Jehovah humiliating Dagon, but now they're bringing that practice in. A little bit of this, a little bit of that, mix it all together in a philosophical soup. You know what? Oprah would be pleased, but God is not. That's a lie. You cannot create your own religion. Secondly, there's a lie regarding social customs. In verse 8, it says this. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the princes and the king's sons and all those clad in foreign clothes. The lie there is that it is fine for the people of God to blend in and not be a distinct people. It's not that God is against imported clothing. I don't know where the shirt was made. It's not necessarily that. It is the idea that says we are sophisticated. We are wealthy. We are educated. We are worldly wise. Therefore, we don't want distinctive clothing which shows people that we are among the chosen nation. We, we want to blend in like everybody else. Probably it was for financial purposes so that we can trade and we can do commerce and that kind of thing. And what God sees them doing is selling off their distinctiveness for profit. He says to his people and to us, you are to be a set-apart people. Come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord. You're to stand out. You're, you're to be the kind of people that, that others recognize as the property of the one true God. And not just blend in like everybody else. 
Secondly, there was a lie regarding business itself. Verse 11 of chapter 1, Well, you who live in the market district, all your merchants will be wiped out. All who trade with silver will be ruined. And the reason for that is because they're believing the lie that there is a hard line between business and faith. Zephaniah knows that the business people of his day were using their wealth and their influence to take advantage of the poor. The system of the day was rigged so that those who were in need and those who were poor, those who were less fortunate, were not being able to enter and to be blessed and to be encouraged and be provided for. They think to themselves, well, it's all good and well to be charitable of mind when you're in religious circles, but this is business. And business is business. And Zephaniah says, compassion is your business. Charity is your business. People are your business. Mankind is your business. The fourth lie that they believe, I'll just label the lie of complacency. It's in verse 12. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. That lie believes that God will never step in. God will never take action. There's never going to be punishment. There's never going to be judgment. We can keep doing whatever we're doing. We, we've never felt that we've been punished before. Why should we worry about it now? And on the other hand, the other reverse side of that is, I'm not sure I trust God to bless should I take a stand for righteousness because He's not going to intervene whether it's good or bad. And so I might as well just keep on my merry way. I don't believe there will be consequences. And when we believe that lie, our conscience becomes dulled and little by little we push away the things of the Spirit. Our motto becomes, live for today. Why should I worry about some punishment that I don't even know for sure is even coming? But Zephaniah says, seek the Lord. He's watching. Turn back to the Lord. He's caring about what you're doing, and there will be an intervention. Don't believe that lie. Now, in chapter 2, the, the, the way he portrays the lie that they're believing changes a little bit. In chapter 2, we see a series of warnings against not so much Judah, but the nations around Judah. He warns Philistia and Moab and Ammon and Cush, which is Egypt, and Assyria. And the reason he's doing that is to illustrate the lie that the people of Judah have, have adopted and that we, would, we must be warned against as well. The lie that says that all pathways to God are equally true. You see, all these nations had their own religious systems. All these nations had their own gods. And Zephaniah is saying by proclaiming judgment on them, even though they don't believe in the one true God, they are still responsible to Him. Their system of religion, system of faith, is not equally true. There is one source of truth. There is one true God who rules all people. Whether the nations recognize him or not doesn't make a difference. He is still God. It's an indictment against the false religion in their day, but also against the pluralism of our day that we live in. The pluralism of our society that says reality itself is pluralistic. In other words, there is no absolute truth to which everyone is responsible. We hear all around us that all ideas, every religion, all faiths need to be regarded as equally true, even though they contradict one another and deny one another. 
even though it flies in the face of rationality and is self-contradictory, for the pluralist, everyone is equally right because every expression is equally true. And if you think otherwise, you are a bigot. That's the society we live in today. And Zephaniah says, it is not bigotry to speak the truth. There is one source of ultimate truth, and there is one true God, and lack of faith in Him does not change that fact. In fact, Zephaniah would go on, and he'd say, it is unloving to allow people to believe that lie, because it will cost them their eternity. In the culture that we live in, an equally powerful lie is what we call, what I'll call compartmentalization. The idea that your faith must be kept private. Your faith must not be brought out. It must not be demonstrated. You must not talk about it or act it out. When you think about it, compartmentalization is the natural result of pluralism. Because if all ideas, even opposite ones, are equally true, there's no way for a society to operate unless you keep those ideas quiet. And so the message to you, believer in Jesus Christ, is that you're free to believe whatever you want to believe as long as you do it out of sight. But don't speak up and don't act out and don't get your religion in my face. But what happens when you have a faith like Christianity that has as its central concept the idea that we must proclaim the blessed hope, that we must talk about salvation in Jesus Christ. It is our obligation. Paul says in Romans, I have a debt of love that I owe, so I, I must preach the gospel because I have received this great love for Jesus and I must proclaim it to others. What happens when in the core of your faith that's the message? Well, what happens is that the pluralist who thinks themselves to be so tolerant suddenly becomes intolerant when you live out that faith. But I'm telling you, you must. We must speak up. Why? It is the compassionate and loving thing to share the message of Jesus Christ and the hope that we have. It is unloving to be quiet and let the pluralist go on their merry way. Zephaniah is not quiet. He speaks out the fact that there is one true God, and the job of his followers is to bring the truth to those who need it. And so the first section of the book of Zephaniah covers those first five lies, and it ends in uh, verse 8 of chapter 3, where it says, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day I will stand up to testify, I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them all my fierce anger, the whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. That ends the section of the grievous day of the Lord's punishment. But from verse 9 that follows, the tone changes completely, where he focuses on the glorious day of the Lord's salvation. And in that focus, the sixth lie is exposed. And that lie is this. We believe our future is ours to forge. In other words, you know, I can pull myself up by the bootstraps. I can make it all happen on my own strength, myself. I don't need anyone's help, certainly not the help from the Almighty. But Zephaniah's answer is, the future is in the hands of God, not you. Chapter 3, verse 11. On that day, you will not be put to shame 
for all the wrongs you have done to me because I will remove from this city those who rejoice in their pride. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill, but I will leave within you the meek and the humble who trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong. They will speak no lies, nor will deceit be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. That's the future that God has in mind. That's the future that only He can cause to be. He forges the future. And I want you to see how always the prophets, though they are honest about the judgment that comes from the hand of God, they look past that to the blessing that is also coming. There's a merciful and redemptive purpose in God's, uh, in God's discipline. And He wants to bring them and us to that place of mercy because the final word of the prophets is the word of blessing and renewal and hope. In fact, that's the final word of the Bible itself. In Revelation 22, we read, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let him who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Hope and blessing is the purpose of history. That's where God is taking us. And listen to this image of how God views us. Verse 17 of chapter 3. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. That's cool. God wants to sing over us. Those of you who are parents and you, you held your baby in your arms, didn't you just start to sing love songs to your, your infant child? Just love songs? Didn't matter if you didn't have a good voice. That kid didn't care. It was just, you know being loved on, just rejoiced over. And that's what God wants to do to His people. And that's what He sees in the future. But He sees it in the future. Verse 13, see the word? For the remnant. For the remnant. It's not for everybody. Let's be honest. It's for those who respond to the word, who respond in obedience and in faith. See, we need to ask ourselves, am I in the remnant? Remnant theology runs all through the prophets and even into the New Testament. It's that remnant who are the called out ones, the church. And so we ask ourselves some question. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, who, who, all of them that call on the name of the Lord and serve Him shoulder to shoulder. Question number one is, have I called on the name of the Lord? It's not just an acknowledgement that there is a vague higher power up there. Am I calling on the one true God who has given us His Word? This side of Calvary, it means, am I calling on Jesus as my Savior and Lord to forgive my sins? Second question is in verse 12. But I will leave within you the meek and the humble who trust in the name of the Lord. Question for us, am I growing in my humility before the Lord? Or am I just kind of setting my jaw as if stone and doing it my way? The humble breeds obedience. Verse 13, the remnant of Israel will do no wrong. They will speak no lies, nor will deceit be found in their mouths. Am I seeking to grow in obedience, purity, and righteousness the way God defines righteousness, or am I letting the culture define righteousness for me? These are the questions that we must ask. And the point of it is, if you've never called in the name of the Lord, if you've never, never humbled yourself before Him, if you feel free to disobey His standards, according, just follow your own preferences and say, well, that's just the way it is, you are not in the remnant. And you have forfeited the blessings. But for the remnant, 
God says, I have a future for you where I'm just going to sing blessings over you. And that's what I want. That's where I'm bringing all this to. And that can be for you when you look to Him. Six lies to be avoided, three questions to ask, and in all of it, God is warning us because He loves us. And those you love, you warn. I'm going to ask you to return with me in your thought to the song that we sang just a moment ago. And I want you to leave with that idea in your mind. When it says, bless the Lord, O my soul, it means make God happy. Live in such a way that honors Him. And when we say that together in song, we are making a declaration. This is what I want to do because I am part of the remnant. Would you stand with me? And we're going to return to that in song. We can do it right without the instruments. Can we have the words though? Because I don't remember them. There it is. So let's sing that together and then I'll pray. Ready? Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, O oh my soul, worship His holy name. Sing like never before, O oh my soul, I worship Your holy name. Once again, bless the Lord, O oh my soul, Oh, my soul, worship His holy name. Sing like never before. Oh, my soul, I worship Your holy name. Lord, help us in the week ahead to live in such a way that You would sing over us. Help us to represent you well in the words that we say, the actions that we take. Help us, Lord, to demonstrate that we are a set-apart people, part of a remnant to whom you give blessing and purpose. Lord, and we want to share that message. Make us bold in a world that says, be quiet and sit down. Help us to stand up and shout out that Jesus is Savior. And we give you the glory for that. In your name we pray. Amen.